Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. Ordinary men living through extraordinary times, New Zealand soldiers Harold Robinson, Ralph Dyer and Douglas Morrison shared a queer identity and a love of performance. Living as gay men within the military forces during World War II and boosting troop morale as female impersonators in wartime concert parties. In the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards long-listed Crossing the Lines, Brent Coots brings to light their previously untold story, unfolding a tale of strong friendships, the search for love and belonging as homosexuals within the military and civilian worlds, and the impact on the queer community today. In conversation with Chris Seekerley, this session is supported by the Friends of the Turnbull Library. We hope you enjoy it. Well, kia ora koutou. Um, nā mā hare mai ki tēnei kō rero rero, ka nui tō hare me te kua kita mihi ki a koutou kua tai mai nei. Ko Chris Seekerley taku ingoa, ko au te chumuaki o te whare pokapoka o Alexander Turnbull. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the session. Thank you for coming along. Um, on pain of torture from Anne O'Brien, I absolutely have to get the preliminaries exactly right. So excuse me if I kind of like have a couple of prompts here to remind me. First of all, these uh, on silent um, tweeting and all that kind of stuff is fine. So silent if you would, or off, please. Um, a whole bunch of stuff relating to COVID. So this is a face mask friendly festival. So uh, if you feel you'd like to wear a mask, feel comfortable doing that, please. You would have seen that there are QR codes everywhere around this place. So I hope you've been coding yourself every so often. Uh, if you are feeling unwell, then here is not the best place for you to be. Um, now, next to our sponsor, a big shout out to uh, the Friends of the Turnbull Library who have sponsored this session. Today is a special day for the Friends because 83 years ago to this very day was the first coming together of that group, so it's an anniversary for them. It's also um, the centenary period of the Alexander Turnbull Library, so I'm particularly delighted that the Friends of the Turnbull Library have sponsored this session, which has enabled it to be a free session. So thank you, Friends. Um, we're about to get into the session. Uh, a couple of other things. There will be uh, a good 10 minutes uh, at the end of the session for questions. We really do ask that if you have a question that you use uh, one of the two mics. There are two standing mics either side. Uh, and why do I ask you to do that? Um, that's because the session is being recorded. So we would like to capture the questions as well as Brent's uh, answers. And absolutely, lastly, lastly, Brent will be available to sign books at the book signing uh, table immediately after the session. So, without further ado, Brent Coates, welcome. Thank you. And congratulations on a very fine book. Uh, Brent, a graduate of Otago University, living in Auckland, author of several works. Uh, on the list here I see Protest in New Zealand, published in 2013. Rereading the Rainbow, Pacific Histories, and of course, just last year, the book we're here to discuss, Crossing the Lines, published by Otago University Press. So Brett is known for his focus on themes of social justice, identity, decolonization. He's particularly interested in stories of inclusion and exclusion. And you'll pick up on some of that, I think, as the session progresses. So to the book. Crossing the lines. Hands up who's read the book yet? Well, you know what a good book it is, and for the majority of you, you've got a real treat in store. So Crossing the Lines, the story of three homosexual New Zealand soldiers in World War II. The three soldiers were Harold Robinson, Douglas Morrison, and Ralph Dyer. And Brent, in the book, you write, I hope I have told the story of all three men 
in a way that is true to their wishes and the way they live their lives. But I have kept their voice authentic and conveyed their sense of humour and fun. So Brent, who were these men and what were they like? Um, I think there were um, uh, men who were, they were probably like party people. Um, they were probably uh, immensely funny and a, and a lot of fun to be with. Um, I, this is a story of World War II, but I wanted it to be more about their lives more holistically. So initially the first chapters are about their pre-war lives. Um, we get, a, I hope that you get as a reader, a sense of their personality through looking at their pre-war lives. They were confident in themselves, they were confident in their sexuality uh, before they go to war. And then after the war, um, they, they meet during the war. Um, Douglas, uh, sorry, Harold Robinson is from Dunedin. Uh, and Ralph Dyer and Douglas Morrison were in Auckland. Uh, they did, um, Harold, sorry, Harold did not know Douglas or Ralph before the war, but they meet in the war, in the Pacific. Uh, Harold's in the Tui Concert Party, and Douglas and Ralph are in the Pacific Kiwi Concert Party. So, um, invariably they meet while, while performing and touring uh, New Caledonia and the Solomon Islands. They become really good friends. So uh, at the end of the book, I decided to, ma I made the decision to continue the narrative right up into uh, the late 1950s because after the, uh, during the war they're in the Pacific, they come back, they perform in Auckland and Wellington uh, at um, review shows here, which were all about keeping up morale with the civilian public. And then they all get ordered to be part of the reinforcements to go to Egypt. Uh, um, Douglas and Ralph end up in Italy, uh, and Harold, Harold remains in Cairo. And uh, at the end of the war, Douglas got demobilized in London, which was quite an extraordinary thing, because we, we had a policy of trying to bring everyone back to New Zealand. Um, and, but soon after, Harold and Ralph make the journey to London to meet Douglas. They flat together, they do the kind of OE, uh, an early version of the, of the overseas experience that many New Zealanders have, have had. Um, and I thought it was really important to, to emphasise that mateship, that friendship, uh, and that time that they had in London together to round off the book. Three very distinct individuals, distinct personalities, and some of that came through in some of the the roles that they performed mm. on stage. Could you want to talk about that? Is each is three individuals? Um, they're all female impersonators. Um, uh, Harold, um, it's interesting to so Harold is. Um, um, his, they all have feminine names. Harold is Helena after Helena Rubinstein, who they all thought was the ugliest woman in the world, uh, albeit the richest woman at the time. Um, uh, he, had a, he had a large nose, I guess, and so he never looked that glamorous. That, he was never a beautiful woman, I don't think. And, and, and there's lots of photos <laughs> in the book. Uh, you can make your own judgments about Well, he had there. great legs, so He had great really... legs. Uh, he loved showing off the legs. The dresses often came very high. Actually, broken nose, didn't he? Yes, he had a broken mm. nose, and he was late coming into the war because, um, although he wanted to join immediately, um, there was an assumption that after World War I, there was an assumption that you needed to be able to breathe in a gas mask. No one knew what type of war we were going to have in World War II. And of course, the, the thing that they thought about was World War I. Um, and of course, in the end, I guess you didn't really need gas masks in World War II. But he couldn't breathe in the gas mask, so he had to have an operation to fix his nose before he was able to join up. Um, uh, Douglas, um, Mount Albert Grammar, elocution lessons, a little bit posh in those days. Um, his, his feminine name was Beulah BBC. BBC because he had this kind of radio voice, um, which, which people did learn to speak 
Elocution. Like elocution lessons, yes. Mm. Um, uh, he plays the plain Janes. He plays the girl next door who's not so, so good looking. He plays the mother figures, perhaps, on stage. Uh, whereas um, Ralph uh, Dyer, um, his, feminine, his, his, his gay feminine name is um, Crystal or Chrissy. Uh, and he's kind of like the blonde bombshell uh, on stage. Um, the Mae West. Yeah, the sort of femme fatale. Um, so they have these roles there, and, um, uh, th and I guess the, partly their looks and personality um, push them into those particular roles on stage. Uh, off stage, I guess they're just three young men, fit, healthy, Enjoying and, 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 and actually having, I think in the end, they have a good war. Uh, they have a fun time at war, actually. They're, they've found a role for themselves that gives them importance, uh, that gives them um, a sense of purpose. They are helping the war effort. Um, they're maybe not on the front line fighting, um, but they are there. Although I, I did then realise that they're, they're quite exceptional people. Um, other men gather around them because I guess the assumption was, oh, the female impersonators must be homosexual. Um, and, and in a way, they become the nucleus of, of communities. I think there's something else there, though. Um, I mean, three overtly feminine men in a very masculine environment. Mm. And you spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about how um, they they were they were simply accepted mm. um, because they were um, doing their bit in terms of uh, training and in uh, you know in the field, so to speak. They were also very entertaining, mm. and it was their ability to um, find humour in situations. Mm which helped them be a part of, the, of the, the groups that they were in, find acceptance. Yeah, on stage and off stage. I think it was really important that they were um, fun people to be with. Um, there's an intense loyalty from other soldiers around them towards, towards them, and I think that they could... Um, they were funny off, on stage and off stage, so they broke the tension uh, they made huge efforts to fit in. Um, Harold becomes the, I think it's the fifth best, best shot in his, in his unit. Um, they're, they're wanting to fit in with the other men as well. And I think they could probably um, have a very sharp retort back to you if uh, you did try and stigmatise them. Well, I think there was one moment in the book where um, a fellow soldier gave a bit of jip. Mm. And I think it was Harold just flattened him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. He wasn't going to um, put up with any kind of nonsense, you know. They were dressed as women on stage, but as Harold said, you know, if men came to see me backstage, they, they saw me come off stage as a man. My, my costume and makeup were off when I came off stage, so they knew that we were, we were men. Well, also partly because the costumes, I think, were so makeshift that they began to deteriorate <laughs> yeah. on their own accord on stage. Actually, the costumes uh, were quite fascinating. They were really ingenious in terms of the creations that were made using very little or whatever was to hand. Yeah, they, um, they, they had to make their own costumes to begin with, and it was through you know, makeshift material, what they could get from the American soldiers up in New Caledonia, um, the, the American uh, pilots gave them sort of parachute material. Um, they actually convinced a group of nuns to sew their, their dresses for them at one point, um, which is uh, very ingenious, um, all for the war effort. Um, but uh, then eventually they, they publicised what they were doing, and people would send up dresses to them. Mm. A lot of, a lot of uh, in, from Auckland, a lot of dresses would be sent up uh, for the shows. That's a nice lead into to talk about the shows, actually, because um, there are a number of stories in the mm. book, and one of the stories is about um, what you consider to be the untold stories of the Tui Concert Party and the Kiwi Concert Party in the Pacific. Mm. And you describe some of the work as quite gruelling, 
in terms of the schedule of shows, the travelling around. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I guess as a writer, it's what is the balance of that? Because it is a little, it become, I, I felt it almost becomes a little bit gruelling. You have to have that narrative to show that. Um, but they are on tours around New Caledonia again and again, going from base to base. Um, they are up touring to Vanuatu, to the Solomon Islands. Um, it's non-stop. Sometimes it's uh, two or three shows a day from camp to camp. Um, I did include just a couple of parts of the book where there are diary extracts to show that um, I sort of, they're sort of broken out in a, in a sort of coloured page so that you can, you can read the book without looking at those if that's distracting. Um, but I wanted them there as, pri as a sort of primary text, as primary document within the book to kind of show just how gruelling that was. You know, they're getting, they're tired in the evenings and they're up early in the next morning driving to the next place, setting up stage, another show, uh, and on it goes. So the setting up and the breaking down of the stage um, was kind of... They didn't really necessarily know where they were going to have to perform in terms of a suitable clearing, I nice. guess. And so the stage could be smaller, it could be much larger. Yeah, initially, yeah, initially in the first tours, the, wherever they went, the base provided the stage. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't always a great stage. But um, later on in New Caledonia, they got a truck that folded down as a stage. So this was a, this was a really great thing for them to have. So they Portable were really theater. excited about that. <laughs> so what would these shows comprise? So um, how long would they be on average? An hour show? Yeah, an hour show. With a series of skits? Yep. Uh, there were songs. Um, what actually surprised me is they kept up with the latest American movies uh, musical numbers from those movies. So when I would look up uh, about a song, it was like, oh, it's just out recently in uh, in, a, in the very latest movie. So I was surprised how quickly those cultural references fed through to them in uh, in the Pacific, and they kept up to date during the war with those musicals. But often they were um, old musical show tunes that they knew New Zealanders would have known. Uh, there was the latest American um, songs from the movies. Uh, things like Mini, Mini from Trinidad was really popular with the soldiers, um, which was Judy Garland, a Judy Garland song. Um, Carmen Miranda. Yeah, Carmen Miranda was a, was a character that they often performed. But then there were lots of skits um, that they wrote themselves, comedy skits. They often, when you look at those skits, they're... Um, all about referencing um, the heterosexual relationships that the soldiers had back home. Mm. They referred to your wives and your girlfriends, and I guess it was emphasising that we're fighting this war, but you'll return home to your loved ones. They're sort of nostalgic for home. All good fun. There was something in the book that talked about um, uh, one swear word performance for performance, yeah. was permitted. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of blue humour, but um, uh, they kept it fairly clean, actually. So, w what size were these troops? Be uh, because they were the the performers, and they were also musicians. Yeah, so there's there's an orchestra um, that's performing too, and um, and then um, really just a small troop of of actors and and singers. Um, a handful, really. Right. Um, uh, so the whole company might, uh, you know, depended on the, the particular tour, but 15, 18 people. Um, uh, yeah, there's an, they didn't, the, uh, our three um, female impersonators, there are times when they didn't get on with all, everybody, um, particularly those in the orchestra are a little bit shocked to have... Um, homosexual men performing in the company uh, and um, that so was these sometimes were boys challenging. From the back country, right? Off yeah. the farm and yeah. were kind of uh, astonished, I suppose, by some of the behaviours yeah. that went on. Yeah, didn't know what they were um, experiencing there in this company. You talked, uh, referred about American um, songs, film yep. references, and then there were American troops. 
Tell us about that in terms of um, what role some of those American troops played in, in being part of the, um, the group. Air three like. soldiers loved the American soldiers. Um, uh, they, they were touring a lot, so it was really hard to have long-term relationships, but there was always an American soldier that they were able to um, hook up with, um, and there's quite a number in the diaries and letters that I uncovered. Um, Harold does have a New Zealand soldier in his battalion who um, becomes his boyfriend, a guy called uh, Bob Murphy from Oakuni. His nickname was Spud, of course. Um, <laughs> Rugby-playing, beer-drinking soldier. Um, and they, they are able, because he's in a battalion concert party, they are able to to have a long-term relationship during the war um, and initially tried to keep it going back in New Zealand. Whereas the other two in the, in the Pacific Kiwi Concert Party, it's constantly touring from base to base. Um, so they're, they're touring New Zealand uh, bases, but they're also touring a lot of American bases. Mm. Um, uh, so there was a lot of meeting up with American soldiers. Yeah. Well, uh, I recall reading in there about after a performance, there'd be a few fans that would kind yeah. of uh, come backstage or, or um, mm. engage the performers, sometimes going for lovely walks down the <laughs> yeah. paths. Yes, walks into the coconut plantation. Um, uh, there's a nice, uh, there's a nice um, incident with um, Douglas, this young man, uh, American soldier, Hal Schaefer, who meets him after? American yeah, names. meets him at Camp Barnes uh, backstage, and um, they spend time afterwards. And then he spends a whole week every day meeting up with Hal, and they'd go to the movies, and they'd have little romantic walks. And he'd write he writes in his diary that it's all or other a blur. You know, he's completely besotted by Hal. Um, but that relationship is only temporary because after a week of touring the bases around Numea. Um, uh, they're moving on, and he doesn't meet up with Hal again. Can you talk a little bit about... Um, there were men in, in, in this war who um, were homosexual, but deeply discreet or, or closeted. And then there were men who... Um, this notion of situational homosexuality who would never have considered themselves to be homosexual, but given the circumstances of the war and circumstances that presented themselves, mm. were. you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, it's an all-male environment, and it's one that's lasting for um, quite a number of years. Um, uh, I uncovered other stories. In fact, in the book, I'm really proud that there are 50 New Zealand homosexual men mentioned. I may talk, uh, and, and, and my three central characters, my three central men, are uh, the focus of the book, but I've integrated um, references and stories from, with 50 other men. Um, and some of those men, when they returned back to New Zealand, um, they get married. Um, they, they go back into a very heterosexual lives, their heterosexual lives. Um, so we we kind of, you know, the, the historian calls that situational homosexuality. Um, maybe they didn't feel confident to continue that, but for others it was this kind of liberating experience. And when they came back from war, they continued to live as homosexual men back in New Zealand. Um, I think um, there's a, there's one of the stories I use is. Um, a soldier who has this, who, who um, after the war he kept every letter and and he kept diaries all his life and he kept every letter that was sent to him, and he also kept a, a like a receipt book where he kept a copy of every letter he sent. Uh, I, I, it's extraordinary. There's over uh, uh, there's boxes. Oh, I think there might be um, thirty or forty boxes in the Hocken Library of them, and. Um, he has a relationship with a guy called um, uh, Darky, Darky Boyd from Dunedin. And um, David Wood is from Christchurch. And um, I think even at the time, in his diary, he writes um, that he's, he's completely in love with Darky Boyd, but he doesn't know whether Darky Boyd is also homosexual. Uh. Uh, 
And Ducky Boy does get married very soon after coming back to New Zealand. Um, so I think that perhaps shows that it was just that situation, that opportunity, that led to that relationship. There's also, um, you know, it's a war situation. So some of the, there were male relationships here that were deep, intense and intimate, but not homosexual, not homoerotic. And Harry Danzi comes to mind with yeah, that one. Yeah, Harry Danzi, the... At one point, the race relations conciliator in New Zealand um, has left an archive, and in that archive, as a heterosexual man, he writes of this intense um, grief at one of his friends dying, one of his mates, um, and the the it, it, I use it to illustrate how close those bonds could be between men. Um, men can form really intense friendships, platonic friendships. Um, and I contrast that with a story of, of, of two soldiers in North Africa uh, at El Alamein, at the Battle of El Alamein, who were in a relationship and one gets killed and the other can't cope with that, uh, with the grief that took place at that time. It's just a good moment for you to read, read a passage from the book. Um, and, I, and I did actually, we've actually already arranged for this, for me to read that little passage. Um, well, thanks, Brent. That was supposed <laughs> to be a very natural segue, but it's better, better be honest. Um, it's actually from an archive at the Auckland War Memorial Museum. Um, Reginald Arthur de, Grey, de Grave um, was a soldier in the 5th Field Park Regiment, and he recorded um, in a number of memoirs. Uh, he's, in, he's actually in his memoirs, very heterosexual. There's memoirs of, of visiting the brothels in Cairo, etc. Um, but there's one memoir about two homosexual soldiers in his unit, Mike and Pat. In 1942 at El Alamein, while the regiment was laying their own mines and clearing gaps through enemy mine belts, the enemy dropped deadly butterfly bombs, killing Mike. All that was left of his body was his severed head. Pat distraught at the death of his lover, was found cradling the head in his arms as if it was a newborn baby, screaming and cursing and not prepared to bury the remains until a priest was present. A Catholic priest, in fact. After four stinking hot days, it was easy to find Pat and what was left of Mike. Not that anybody was overly keen to find them, either of them, it was just a matter of looking for the biggest and moistest swarm of filthy flies. From well upwind, our sergeant tried to persuade Pat to bury Mike's head, now a real four-star stinker. However, when the sergeant heard the ominous click-clack of a rifle bolt, he decided not to push his luck and retired at Olympic speed. When a priest was found, he and Pat got down on their knees with Mike head between them. When Pat unwrapped Mike's rotting head from the ground sheet, one couldn't tell the back from the front. Pat dug a hole with his tin hat and rolled the head in. Then, without any advance planning, the whole company honoured Pat's love for Mike. We all shoved one up the spout, pointed our rifles in the direction of the Africa Corps and fired one shot, all 50 of us but then they watched Pat, with his rifle slung over his shoulder, walk over and disappear behind a burned-out Sherman tank. After a few moments, there was a single shot, and a half-dozen of us and the padre strolled over and buried the poor bastard. Army doctors, too, reported cases of homosexual soldiers who lost their lovers. Invariably, the surviving comp partner complained, the bullet should have got me, not him. In one case, the survivor had discovered his friend with the top of his skull blown away and within a few hours developed an hysterical sense of numbness and constriction. Another witnessed the amputation of his, a comrade's leg and became a hysterical paraplegic when he heard of his lover's death. Mm. The more kind of tragic part of the book. Brent, in 2009, you were awarded the Royal Society Teaching Fellowship and that enabled you to begin research 
and to New Zealand soldiers' experiences during World War II. Tell us about your process in researching and writing the book. What drew you to the topic, and how did you go about researching it? Well, I, I, there was a fantastic chance to just spend a whole year reading and researching and finding a project, and um, it's, it's a fantastic opportunity for anyone to do. And um, initially, I was looking at war poetry, then I kind of moved towards, um, I spent a month at the Alexander Turnbull reading the diaries and letters of men and looking at them dating women in Egypt and Italy. I was sort of going towards the war brides thing and, and also just you know how successful were they in meeting women. Um, and I even went to, uh, went to, to Egypt, spent uh, quite a few weeks in, in Cairo, uh, drove through the battlefields. I was looking for a project. I came back to uh, New Zealand and that's when I was doing some oral history interviews and came across Harold Robinson. And uh, very first interview, very straight up interview. But I must have won his trust because when I went back the second time for a follow-up, out came all these pictures of himself as a woman in dresses in the army. Um, and suddenly... He, I realised this is a story that isn't in the historical narrative. Mm. And as an historian, you want to bring in the new. You know, what hasn't been written before? What have we overlooked? Um, and he, of course, knew that um, Douglas Morrison was alive, living in London. So I very quickly flew over to interview him in London um, and carried on interviewing Harold back here. I uncovered Douglas's diaries and letters at the Kippenberger Library, which is at the Wairu Army Museum. Uh, hundreds of letters uh, and diaries from the war period. Um, a little sneaky thing by looking through the electoral roll and found the address of Douglas's sister, who would be, have only been about three, I think, when Douglas left New Zealand and, and he never returned. Um, contacted her just thinking, well, maybe the family has some knowledge in some things. Um, up in Cooper's Beach, uh, way up north. Mm. Um, she had a trunk, an old metal trunk, and in it we opened it up and there was all his possessions that he had left in 1944 when he left. And it was suddenly a, a, like you'd, it's like striking, it's finding a treasure chest, it's finding gold. And I realized, all right, this is a story that I have a lot, a lot of resources now to corroborate the stories. And at the Alexander Turnbull Library, I found this fantastic photo album that Ralph Dyer had placed there of wartime photographs. So suddenly you have this incredible story that hasn't been told. You've got the primary documents. You can corroborate the oral histories. And then I just, it was all about finding that, those needles in the haystack, trying to find all these other stories to contrast uh, and, and um, to compare and contrast and find similar stories or different stories from uh, other homosexual men in the world. What struck me when we were talking about this earlier, you mentioned that, um, you, you know, and it wasn't that sneaky looking up the electoral. Yeah. Researchers do that. <laughs> We've I all know, probably been um, researched at some point by yeah. a researcher kind of finding us in the electoral roles. Yeah. But um, you contacted the sister, and she had assumed that her brother was dead. Yeah, it was a very funny phone call because I said, I'm, I'm researching your, your stepbrother. And uh, she says, oh, you know, I, I think he, we assume he's died a long time ago. I said, oh, I actually just saw him in London a few weeks ago. So what was really nice is that um, she and her, her sister did go to London and briefly meet. They, I think they spent two afternoons with Douglas um, in, in London before, uh, before he died. Mm. Yeah, so that was really lovely to um, bring that family history together. And fantastic at the book launch to have um, his nieces from his two sisters there and other family members. So it's been really great to connect w the family with their own family history. It's, um, I, I was struck reading through the book, that um, reading the book, that the role that various women played um, in, in uh, most of the stories that you tell here from um, relationships with mothers, mm -hmm. with, uh, with young boys, um, 
who you're going to call if you need a female on your on your on your elbow? Um, yep. And there were some women that fitted that category. Yeah, well, Harold the... famously Frieda Stark, uh, who he actually marries for. You know, he, he did actually say the marriage was legitimate for six months, but in the end, she's lesbian, he's gay or homosexual, as he actually, uh, he would use the term, and um, it was never going to work um, in the long term. Dowager aunts played a role yeah. as well. Dowager aunts, yeah. yeah. So, um, oh, that's my other question here. You said something just then about gay or rather homosexual. So, let's talk about labels for a minute. Um, so, the title is Crossing the Lines, and I believe you didn't, that wasn't your initial choice for the, for the lead title. Yeah, I was going for Hidden History, but um, the publisher didn't like that, that idea. Okay. Um, but that's okay. We love the publisher, by the yeah, way, because right. I think the publisher's <laughs> in the room. Um, Otago University Press. The subtitle, The Story of Three Homosexual New Zealand Soldiers in World War II. Homosexual, not gay, not queer. Tell us a little bit about your choice of word there. Yeah, I thought I'd get more reaction to that. Um, I guess from an academic, if you're in a university institution today, it's all queer theory, queer culture. Um, it's, it's a very term of the now. Um, um, but Harold was really insistent. It was really interesting when, when interviewing him. If, um, I was very, com I was, guess I would, so would slip into using the term gay because we've all normalized that word. We know what that means. And he'd go, you're not listening to me. You're not listening to me. It's like, oh, yes. And he had this sort of like, the gays destroyed everything. He saw the term gay as this identity that comes in the 1970s and, was, and changed everything. And so he insisted that, so I'd say, I'm very, very sorry. Oh, the homosexual soldier, not the gay soldier. Um, he was very, very, very firm on his identity as being homosexual, not gay, and that there was a really distinct difference between the two. And I guess that's um, because his identity is formed at this period in this, this sort of pre, um, pre, you know, gay comes in in 1972. Next year will be 50 years since gay liberation. Before that, it was homosexual. And I was, I was actually reading some archives recently that um, there's a whole meeting about shall we call ourselves homosexual in 1972 or shall we call ourselves homophiles and half the room of a conference is wanting homophile and the other half is saying, how about this American term gay? So n words are de deliberately changed mm. um, to fit certain situations. And um, thank goodness they didn't use homophile. That's a, a ghastly word. Um, but... Um, he, the homosexual, and I wanted to honour Harold. I wanted to use the terms that the men were using at the time. They were not, queer was used as a very derogatory term. It was only, you only heard it when you were being bashed, when you were being picked on by homophobes. And he, he was not, a, not interested in that word and reclaiming it. And yet, it. more latterly, it's yeah, been adopted to decolonise, if you like, a, a term. That yeah, and as a much broader, a broader term. That, um, um, that brings in both sexual orientation and gender, I guess. So, Brent, let's talk about your homophobia. Um, in the first few pages of the book, that was my disarming moment. Gosh. But, um, no, <laughs> but, you know, we did actually rehearse that as well. <laughs> no, the, um, early in the book, you, you're very straight up about it. You visited Harold, um, I think he was in... Uh, um, in a hospice at the time, or he was in a... Yeah, Harold, Harold was HIV positive. Yep. Um, and um, I was, was driving some friends from the South Island um, in around in Auckland, and they had been invited to his birthday party. And um, that was the first time I, I had met Harold. And um, it, he, was, he was having a rest at Herne Bay House, which was an AIDS respite home in Herne Bay. Uh, at that time, and um, uh, ev there was lots and lots of people there, and all these men had f you were using female names, and it was all very camp. And I I found it quite challenging, and I and I and I realised that um, 
I guess everyone has a little bit of internalised homophobia, uh, whether you're heterosexual, homosexual, whatever. Um, we're brought up in the culture that we grow up in, and um, I had never had that much contact with very effeminate men. So it was challenging to begin with, and I'll, I acknowledge that. Just as it was challenging, I really, you know, one of the big challenges is meeting people in their 90s. I guess my grandparents died in their early 80s. I'd had contact with people up to that, but there's a quite a big difference when you're meeting someone in their mid-90s and dealing with them. So I think I also had a kind of age phobia to mm. I had to get over, like dealing with very old people. I just was not used to that. And, um, well, communicating with them. Yeah, communicating with them. Uh, was just as much a, uh, was a, was a challenge for me. So there are there are those challenges, and in fact, I think that I grew a lot from that. Yep. Um, but you know, I'm on, I'm honest about that. Yeah. It speaks a little bit to uh, something we touched on earlier about trust, building trust. Mm. Uh, you earned, and you're not quite sure why, because that first interview with Harold was fairly formal by the sounds of it, mm. the next visit and subsequent visits were much more relaxed and he was clearly very open to you. I would interview, uh, there's 15 interviews that I footnote um, and reference here, but there were a lot of other interviews too. Um, I would interview him, then the next time I, I would bring kind of little ghetto cakes with flourishes of chocolate sticking out the top. That He loved that kind of food um, and, he, and he didn't get... I guess in his living situation, he wasn't getting those treats anymore, and he'd reminisce about the delis in, uh, and the delicatessens in, in Cairo, Groppies, a very famous cafe that still exists in Cairo, that they would go. Um, and some, for some soldiers, the first time they saw those, that kind of food, uh, which wasn't available in New Zealand, um, but also in the London and Paris cafe culture. So I would bring treats down to him, we'd, we'd meet informally, then maybe the next time another interview, maybe a couple of social visits and then another interview. And I think um, if you study oral history, you learn about Studs Terkel, a very famous American historian, oral historian, and he talks about the collaborative nature of oral history. Um, and academically, you read that, you know about that, but I really felt that it wasn't necessarily me who was driving the interviews and the research. Harold would also suddenly come up with an idea that I should research this person or this angle. I'd go away, bring my findings back to him. Um, then he, that would maybe um, trigger mem more memories or we would hear the same stories again, and which would help kind of clarify points. So it really became our research, uh, a collaborative process, as much as his as mine, and um, it was really great working with him. Yeah. He sounds adorable, actually. I mean, the way yeah, you describe <laughs> the interactions with him. Oh, he was the centre of everything. If anyone yeah. here knew Harold Robinson, uh, people just would flock around him. Yeah. Lots the... What's my notes here? So that's what they were like. Oh, it was the. Um, when did you decide enough already? Because um, you know, starting from a starting point of well, how much is in the archives, and what are the stories here? I mean, you came to this particular set of stories from another um, avenue, if you like, just trying to see what might be the stories to tell. Um, how did you decide? Yeah, okay, you focused on three men, you talk about 50 other men, um, and no doubt there were many, many more than that. When did you decide enough is enough here? I need to write, I need to get this book happening. I guess I wanted to be inclusive. I didn't want to leave anyone out. Um, there was one soldier that I did interview in um, Dunedin. Uh, he was happy to talk to me, but he decided he didn't want... Um, his name or story to be in the book. So he has he has left out. Only I know who he is. Um, he had a great war in the Pacific. He met lots of American soldiers uh, and enjoyed their company. Um, but I think he had been arrested in the 1950s and imprisoned for homosexuality. And I think he just 
he he was now 90 and he didn't want to be in the book because he didn't want that bringing him that that bringing yeah I think he was more sensitive to his presence there um well, just on that note, it, it takes. Uh, you mentioned that many men were homos uh, their homosexuality was situational. After the war, they returned to civilian life, married, had families. To what extent are some of these men being outed in your book? They're in the archive. Everyone that I've used is in the archives. Yeah. And I kind of made the ethical decision that if their families wanted to do family history, they can go and read the archives. They're all, I, I made sure I corroborated everything. Um, they are there. Um, so they can find those stories themselves and read that information. Uh, it's already written down there. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I made the judgment, um, I thought about it a lot. Um, and. I don't see their homosexuality as a, or situation of homosexuality as a negative thing. Uh, and I didn't want to play into any homophobia. And I thought, well, look, it's now their, it would be their great granddaughter today. If she's reading it and she's lesbian, how fantastic that she can find out that she has a queer family history way back then. Um, uh, and I think that's, I think I, I, I wasn't too, uh, yeah, I think I made that uh, uh, the right call there. Um, mm -hmm. I certainly wanted to bring these soldiers uh, back into the New Zealand histor historical narrative. And I think in answering to your question, I, I put, put all the information together. I actually waited a few years. I needed to get access to the court-martial files. They are locked up for 100 years, so um, 2045. But I wanted to look at them. I asked. Okay. Um, you I got asked, them early. <laughs> I got them early yeah. um, through the Judge Advocate General. So, um, and it took me a long time to read through hundreds of files. Some of them were just court martials for drunkenness. Some for um, leave without with um, a going AWOL. Some were for things like bigamy, rape. Oh, there's every, everything. Murder. There's everything in there. Um, I only found 10 soldiers who were prosecuted for homosexuality during the war. I think, think the archives are not complete. Many of them may have been destroyed or not brought back to New Zealand. Um, there should be a lot more um, uh, court-martial files. I did find some cases of soldiers um, who, in their personnel records, they've been court-martialed, but they're um, actual court-martial files are not at Archives New Zealand uh, in the Judge Advocate General's records. So um, once I did that, trying to find, um, you know, trying to get those alternative contrasting stories through the prosecution documents, the sentencing files, I kind of thought, right, it's sort of complete. I could have kept it going and researching, and I'm sure there are other stories out there, and maybe what would be great is if families have their own personal archives and stories about um, relatives during the war, maybe they'll come to light now. Maybe they'll be um, donated to the Alexander Turnbull Library or the, or the Kippenberger Library at Waiuru, mm -hmm. and we can have much richer stories about the war. Your point about um, descendants today, the stories are there in the archives, they could find them. Well, actually, how easy was it to find some of this material in terms of library archive catalogues? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. There's no, um, there's no listings. You know, you go to the Waiura Army Museum, they have um, listings under diaries and letters or um, at concert parties is a, is a, is a search term. Um, I guess homosexual is not a search term at the moment, um, but who knows about the future uh, in terms of how you categorise things. Well, actually, um, <laughs> prior to the session, I went to the Turnbull Library and typed in homosexual yeah. and got heaps of entries. Yeah. But they were all latter-day entries, yeah. you know, over the last 20 years, not nothing further back. Um, it's just about time for questions, but one thing you mentioned about um, people who were court-martialed, and it uh, struck another chord with me, a, a story in the book, and I think, I think it, uh, Robbie and Marshy. So um, Marshall, of course, was Jack Marshall, 
the Prime Minister. The prime, who went on to become the Prime Minister. And a very, very conservative Prime Minister, perhaps our dullest Prime Minister ever. <laughs> uh, upstanding religious figure who has this... Um, essentially this drag queen as is Batman. Uh, Batman's like a personal assistant who dresses you and cleans your tent and does your er errands. And it sounds like the one time that um, Robbie uh, got into trouble with him was, um, this is the mention of the AWOL thing, uh, there was a Betty, Mo uh, Betty Davis movie yeah. playing in town and it was like Consumer. only on for one night. Now Voyager, I think it was at all. Yeah, and Harold sneaks out to the And movie. he snuck out to go and see it and then they couldn't find him. And he got into trouble and I, I thought the way that um, Marshy, Marshy uh, dealt with it, it sounded quite sublime actually. He didn't berate him, he didn't dress him down. He just said... It's not what I expect from you. And, and Robbie was completely mortified yeah, by Harold that. He would mortified. have been fine never did it again. if he'd got a telling off, but never. And a very, very loyal relationship. Yes. But um, he, um, right to, his, to you know, the year of his death, um, Harold was so loyal to the memory of Jack Marshall. Um, he, does, he did have a funny story, which is not in the book, that... Um, uh, he was doing a part with the Royal New Zealand Ballet because Harold becomes a ballet dancer and it was a guest part as an, an older figure uh, in that ballet performance. And they were touring New Zealand and they were in Wellington and he went um, to Bellamy's for um, lunch with John, John Marshall. And he turned up, you know, long hair and ponytail and diamond earrings and sitting at Bellamy and um, both of them enjoyed the moment because everyone stared at him thinking, what on earth is, has, you know, Prime Minister John Marshall got, who is he having lunch with? Um, uh, both very amused at the, at the very conservative reactions they got, for, to, you know, over that lunchtime. Uh, we have a screen down there that's kind of saying question time, question time. Um, so it is time for questions. If I could just uh, invite you to go to the microphones so that we can hear your question recorded, um, please feel free. Kia ora, my name's David. The, the, the discussion there about um, court martial brings me back to an interesting thought. A preface to my question, in the concert parties, were there any women performers? No, no women at all. Women were um, not uh, allowed to go up to the front line or up into, into the war. Um, I guess some do go to Cairo as uh, the, the, the nurses, and there's a small group that go as these, they're called TUIs, that uh, run a New Zealand, the New Zealand um, club in Cairo. Um, interestingly, None of the, the three men actually ever bothered to go to the New Zealand club. It well, perhaps wasn't a venue that they were interested in. Um, but um, uh, there are no women in the New Zealand concert parties. Because yeah. what I was interested in was these were, the, the concert parties were officially sanctioned by the government mm. and by the army authorities in a time when homosexuality was obviously completely illegal and you could be caught martial. Yep. Where did, how, how did you think, or how did you, what did you discover about that that relationship between the official position and the obvious choice of sending up homosexuals who were impersonating women? Um, I actually, as has been really good reaction from the New Zealand um, Defence Force, they love the book um, because it paints them in a really uh, good light in in some respects. But I think um, during World War Two, it's a conscripted army. Everybody had to serve. You turned 18 and you went into the military forces. If you didn't, and you're a conscience objector, you are locked up in military detention. Everybody has to serve. So the army has to be one which includes everybody. Uh, um, it doesn't matter whether you are rich or poor, educated or not. Um, there has to be some inclusion. And I think that in that respect, everyone has to find a role. So many, many of the homosexual men that I uncovered, they are doing roles such as, you know, some of them, some of them are combat soldiers. 
um, and um, uh, some of them uh, in the book, they, they do die um, in combat, uh, but many are working, they're finding roles in, um, as a pay clerk, as, uh, as a Batman, um, behind the scenes. Everyone's trying to find a way of finding a way to support the war effort. It is total war. The whole of our society was trying to do their best. And just because you were homosexual doesn't mean that you didn't support the war effort 100% and find a way to, to be included. I think that perhaps, I, I think that uh, when people were discreet, but when soldiers were found, um, rather, perhaps rather than prosecute, I think um, there, seems, there seems to be a suggestion that perhaps they were dealt with informally. I think it was too expensive to send soldiers all the way back to New Zealand. We did send some back, and there are some in the book that are sent back to New Zealand. Um, but often, you've, you've spent years training these people up in um, specialised military roles. To send them back, to lose them from the army, is too much. Uh, so perhaps an informal punishment would be, all right, you, you don't have any leave for the next six months. You're on guard duty for the next month, every night. Um, uh, a court-martial process is also very expensive. It requires a lot of time uh, and um, is really the last resort. Um, so I think perhaps um, it goes both ways. There's, there's a, a kind of inclusion happening in the military forces mm. um, and perhaps it's sort of when, when it is found out as non-consensual, um, it's dealt with maybe sometimes informally. Thanks, Brent. We have another question there. Yes, look, the, the latter part of your question uh, dealt with what I was going to ask, but I just wanted to ask, um, how did New Zealand's treatment of its homosexual soldiers compare to its allies, for example? Um, the United States uh, had a, a period where they did um, search out, arrest, um, and send home, um, in disgrace, uh, homosexual soldiers um, in Namia, there was a pink stockade, a kind of um, little prison um, up, the, up in the hills, which um, was specifically for American homosexual soldiers. Um, so a huge contrast to the New Zealand Army that seems to be much more, which seems to be a much more inclusive defence force at the time. Um, perhaps... Um, Things did change, perhaps after World War II and in, in the period of the Cold War, um, there's a more stress on conformity in society. Um, there's also perhaps um, more stress on the medicalisation of homosexuality as an illness in the, in the 50s and 60s that perhaps le does lead to a period of uh, where, where soldiers are kicked out of the armed forces if they're discovered to be homosexual. Um, that's a book that needs to be written. Um, and recently there was the Peter Rule um, exhibition that toured the country uh, which recognised that. Um, but I think in that period of total war where everybody's needed, um, perhaps our armed forces um, come off much better. Than we have 45 seconds left, and that's 45 seconds for you to... Um Talk about your next writing project. Um, I, I've been starting doing research looking at um, exclusion inclusion with LGBT artists. I, I actually started with a, a soldier, a, a British World War II soldier, um, Charlie Rose, in Auckland here, interviewing him before he died. Um, and maybe that might become a project. Oh, no, maybe. So. Maybe. Sounds interesting. <laughs> um, 
So thank you. Very, I'm going to ask for a round of applause for Brent in a moment. But before we do that, um, I just once again shout out to the friends of the Turnbull Library. This is here just hot off the press uh, magazine and there'll be copies of this available for you to learn all about them and about the library, I think, out at the uh, book signing table, um, which is where Brent is going to be in about two minutes' time. So please join me in thanking Brent Coots. Tanakoe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi or Tamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews, and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.